going somewhere this morning, so we're going to get going. We've been doing a series on God's advice to exiles, um, and particularly at the moment we're looking at exiles. And this is based on the last couple of weeks, uh, Josh and I have been doing, I guess, um, some little setting the scene to help us understand. So some of this, if you haven't been following along, do a little bit of a summary here of where we're, where we're picking up from today. But you might want to go online, the, the sermons are on the, online there, there's a little bit of in a series where we want you to come on the journey. Psalm 84 says, blessed are those whose hearts are set on a journey. So we're coming along, we're going somewhere together, but it requires us to move together. So we've been, the, the, one of the assumptions, let me turn this on, one of the assumptions of technologies, we turn it on, one of the, 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 the baseline convictions is that actually to be a follower of Jesus is in many ways to be an exile and we looked at why this is um, and it's actually the, the normative experience of the characters in scripture they were culturally usually for most of scripture they would find themselves in a situation where they were being their political and social their cultural world around them was being set by people who weren't saying I wonder what Jesus thinks about this, or I wonder what God thinks about how we should do things. That was actually quite normal in Scripture. Um, but even beyond that, into the New Testament, um, in John 17, Jesus has this prayer where he says, he prays for disciples, he says, um, I long for them to be in the world, but not on of, of it. And even the language of Jesus of, as our Lord indicates that he's the ultimate source of reality. He's the ultimate plumb line for the values that should shape and govern our lives and we use this language that we become a part of the kingdom of God there's a kingdom of God where these values are preeminent but that is often and we see it in the time of Jesus where actually the values of the kingdom of Rome were the ones that were setting the political agenda and the cultural agenda and so we're a citizen of the kingdom but we're living in another reality and so Paul uh, Peter talks about beloved I urge you as sojourners and exiles we looked at the fact that actually to be, for the vast majority of us, to have sort of grown up and been born into this time and this place as a, as a living in a, in a Western world, that for centuries the historical reality has been um, kind of to be Christian was to be at the centre of power. But increasingly now we're experiencing that that's not the case for all sorts of reasons. And again this week... This week, we see one of the reasons, the reaction to um, George Pell's conviction. And I know there's, there'll be lots of opinions in this room about what that means and what it should mean and the validity of all of that is a little bit irrelevant. But the reaction of the society to that, we see the, 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 the sensitivity. And we've got to own the fact, here's what I would say, we've got to own the fact that whilst there might be an overreaction, whilst we might feel things are unfair or unjust, we've got to accept we, we have not used and we have abused positions of power and influence. Christians have position, abused positions individually and collectively as Christians within our society and that explains why there's a reaction. If we can't accept that, then I think I would go as far as to say you, you're probably going to be sidelined in the response. If we can't get past and accept that actually 
we haven't done well, Christians haven't done well when we've been in positions of power and influence. And so there is a response and increasingly people, you know, the, the response is to say there is no place, there should be no place for Christianity in the, cult, in the conversation about how society is run, the institutions of society, schools, healthcare, um, you know, just political circumstances, where normally the assumption would have been, well, what, you know, it's reasonable to say or ask, what does God think about this? What does Jesus think? Now, increasingly, there's a hostile push to say, that's irrelevant. In fact, more than that, that's actually harmful. So we are in a form of exile there. That's, that's sort of the experience. And I, I think we all get that. We can quibble over how we got here, how valid it is, but that's the reality. Well, once we get there, what I'm saying is there's some good news for us because actually so much of Scripture was written into this context. There's so much here for us because really the important question, rather than how did we get here, should we be here, is it right? It's like, well, what now? What now? And this is the idea of God's advice to exiles. And we've been looking through the book of Daniel. We looked about looked at this idea that our posture towards the culture when we're living in exile, when we're in this reality where the levers for cultural, political, social, spiritual shaping are not in the hands of people who are doing it on behalf of God or because of God, well, how do we respond? What, what's, what should we do now? And we're saying there's two very natural, instinctive responses. And they're polar opposites. And in fact, they're reactions to each other. One is what we've used the term to rebel or revolt. It's like to be so indignantly and entitledly wrong. This is not right. This is right. That's wrong. I'm not going to touch anything that is ungodly. I'm going to remove myself away from that. I'm going to push back really aggressively against anything that I think is not of God. It's a really extreme reaction that's actually formed out of the fear of looking like we're compromising. Can you see that? It's, I need to be so clear about what is black and white and about what God says and I don't want anything. It's often out of a fear that we would see, be seen to be compromising because that is actually also a very valid... Oh, sorry, it's not so much valid, but it's a very um, understandable response that actually we just... Look, we don't want to make... First, we don't want to look like we're standing up and being angry at people or making a scene or we don't... Often the fear is to be actually really labelled as an exile. You're not of us. You're not in this world. Be kicked out. And so we go along with things and we adjust. And the, we all know how this works, surely. We all know how compromise works. It's the frog in the... I was going to say frog in the blender. That's a different... <laughs> that's a different image. It's a frog in the saucepan. Yeah. Where slowly it turns up by degrees. By degrees. And we compromise and we go along with the way of the world. And so here are these two polarised responses to living in a culture that's not of God. That, that is not where we believe the values of God aren't shaping what's going on here. The way of the exile that we see in Scripture, again and again, we're going to dig a little bit into, further into this, is we've used these words. It's of loyalty and subversion. Now, we've got to do a little bit of unpacking here. The loyalty is actually a twin loyalty. So the, the way of the exile, and we'll see this really clearly with Daniel. We'll see this um, like in an inspired way with Daniel. We see it with Esther. We see it with Jesus. There is a loyalty, obviously, and faithfulness might be even a good term there to God and to the values of the kingdom and the way of God. 
But there's also a loyalty to the culture. Now this, oh, hang on, where's he going with this? There's a loyalty or an affinity or a desire to serve the, the community or the culture or the place of exile that we found ourselves in. And we draw this from, remember our, our touchstone passage we've used to come back again and again is Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah prophesied and said, this is going to happen. So the Spirit of God working through Jeremiah the prophet said, this is going to happen, you're going to go to Babylon. But God is in this. And when you get there, this, I want you to live this way. Here's the posture I want you to take towards this culture. And he says, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage. A lot about marriage. Uh, increase in number there, a lot about babies. Um, all, and this bit here, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city. This was so controversial. This would have been so controversial. Because the instinct of God's people would be to revolt, to say, well, well we are not of them. We are, we are the chosen. And here, through Jeremiah, God's saying, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which, you have carried, uh, to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. See the loyalty bit? It, it, we use that word loyalty. It's, there's an affinity. Work for its good. Be a part of it. Be in the world, but not of it. So there's this twin loyalty thing going on, but then there's this subversion. Man, this is tricky. So where you come across values or systems that you feel you can't at all work with, that are wrong, then you live, not revolt, not speak, yell, get angry, but you live in a way that subverts whatever that value is. So if you live, if you're exiled, in your workplace or your community, and what confronts you all the time is the, the, the lack of justice. It just seems unfair. Then you live with mercy and compassion. You subvert that by what you live. If you are confronted in your world, which I hope you are, by individualism and selfishness, then you subvert that by living a life of generosity and community. You subvert this, and we're going to see how Daniel does this. This is, I, I, you know, I'm sure I come back to this story all the time because it's one of my favorite. Jesus, the, the woman caught in adultery, this is so twin loyalty and subversion. Because who brings the woman caught in adultery? By the way, I don't know where the guy is. Just think about that for a moment. Yeah. Takes two to tango, if you know what I mean. He's not there, but the woman's there. So I've already got a little bit of injustice going on here. It's the religious leaders who bring and are trying to trap Jesus in this moment where he has to choose and say that is unholy and this is what's right and and it's like this really choose one here are you going to compromise God's law because this is not right or are you going to be a part of literally it's a mob it's a revolt it's an angry mob that's coming that they're saying this is not right she should be stoned so Jesus in this moment does this thing where he bends down and he draws in the dirt now, what's going on here is that it's, it's understood that, that the law of God has been handed down and written on the tablets by the finger of God. So in this moment, look at this for subversion and loyalty, being clear about who he's loyal to, I'm well aware of the law. <laughs> I'm well aware of, and who wrote it? I was there. <laughs> I was a part of it. But he stands, and he stands with the woman, 
And in a lack of grace and mercy and understanding, he says, well, he subverts that and says, you without sin cast the first stone. He was happy to let the religious power brokers think he was compromising because I'm sure they went away thinking that. But he brings a justice and a mercy and a grace into that moment that subverts the whole thing. He lives it out. There's the way of the exile. Twin loyalty. He stayed, you know, he didn't contravene God's heart and law. In fact, what he did was live it fully because he brought mercy and justice and grace into the picture, which is the full law. But he does it, he embodies something because he literally stands with this woman and subverts the culture of the day. That's the way of Jesus. Don't you just wish we could just pick one or the other? You mean we've got to balance two things here? We've got to figure when we've got to get off our high horse and off our moralising and actually bless the community we're a part of and show loyalty to that. But we've also got to find out what should we never compromise on. We've got to do both. Oh, give us a break. Can't you make it easier? Well, kind of yes and no. So we're going to look at this loyalty and subversion thing. We looked at Daniel, forget all that. It was really good. Go and have a look at that. Some of the best PowerPoint work you'll ever see in your life. We're starting at Genesis to this morning. To have a look at this, we're going to look at the way in which um, in Daniel, God is answering through Daniel and his friends, through the book of Daniel. He's, it's an ancient story that is answering a thoroughly modern question, a thoroughly human question. But to understand it, we've got to go back to Genesis. Genesis, if we're making a Marvel movie, Genesis, first two chapters, is the origin story. Because everything needs to have a good origin story, right? So Genesis 1 and 2, it's the origin story of not so much God, but of humanity and of the world. And so we're introduced to this God who is actually doing this cosmic project of making the world. So straight away, God introduces himself as an origin story into the ancient world, which is used to gods doing things. But he introduces himself as the God who made everything. Because what in the ancient world, think of Greek or Roman mythology, gods had realms, God of thunder, God of love, God of, you know. And even like the big gods like a Zeus sort of had this funny relationship where, with humanity where humans could usurp God or trick God. Or kind of, it, was, it was power was up for grabs. So into that world, this story says, no, no, this is the God of gods. This is the Lord of the universe. But he creates this world, but then he does this other thing, almost diametrically opposed, where he places himself and humanity, Adam and Eve, together in relationship. He's saying, all of this stuff is actually just the stage for relationship. And so he's with these people that he creates. And so there's this sense of intimacy. And we hear from Genesis all the way through the Old Testament, in fact, all the way through Scripture, it's an echo, um, it's a phrase, it's a heartbeat. I'm your God, you're my people. I'm your God, you're my people. That's what it's saying there in Genesis 1. And at times through the Old Testament in particular, it actually literally you'll read the words, I'm your God, you're my people. It's like this heart. it's like this thing that keeps coming back. I've, I've put a version here, I'm the Lord your God. I'm, I'm, I'm the God. Um, but actually it's kind of the, the echo that's written in the heart of God's people is I am the Lord, your God. 
and you are my people. It's got that kind of feel to it. Projects who he is, but then says, but we're together in this, and I'm for you. And he demonstrates that. And so we get the grand story of the Exodus out of um, Egypt, where, again, they find themselves in a form of exile of their own doing. They find themselves in Egypt in slavery. And God says, I am the Lord, so watch, watch the way in which I deliver you through Moses, through people. But they brings them out of there. And in the desert, we looked at how, we've looked at how in that journey, and again, blessed are those whose hearts are set on a journey, because that journey was about forming them together as I'm your God, you are my people. He gives them the big ten. What are the first two commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your heart. You shall have no other gods. I'm your God. You're my people. It's the basis of everything. It's the, it's the echo. It's the heartbeat. He then also establishes this pattern of relationship, these practices that are built into their yearly cycle. They're built into their, their form of um, uh, their rituals and practice, their spiritual practices that continue. All these practices are to remind them, I am the Lord, your God, and you are my people. So come together and celebrate every year the Passover where you will remember that I delivered you from slavery and remember I will continue to deliver you and actually if you're listening, there's these hints in the Passover, I'm going to ultimately deliver you as well. But do that every year to remember I'm your God, you're my people. Come together at the start of the, um, at the, start of the, um, the seasons, the first harvest remind, and come together and celebrate to remind you that all good things you have come from me and I will continue to provide. I am your provider and I'm going to continue to provide. Come through the process of um, sacrifice with the, the, um, in the temple, well, originally with the, uh, with the tabernacle. It was a tent. Then they built a temple. Uh, and come there and sacrifice things so you remember my heart is not to keep your sins against you and ultimately I will Forgive for good and forever. So remember that. Make all of these practices a part of your life, not so that they're a part of your life and you can tick the box that says, I'm a good Christian because all, I'm a good Jew because of all the things I do. It's so you remember what? I'm your God and you're my people. And so they ground all of this into their life over years and years, centuries and centuries. The, the, the challenge of the exile that we're dealing with here is that they find themselves in a place where they can't do any of it. They can't do any of that stuff. And as we all do this, right, we all do this. When we, when we have habits, we forget what they're about. We just remember the pattern. This is what I do. Because why? Because it's what I do. And we forget what they're about. And so they find themselves in a place where they can't do the things that they did and they've maybe forgotten the reasons why. And so their question, the deep, deep modern question, human question that comes when we are in foreign territory, when everything changes, when everything's stripped away, is he still the Lord? Is he still our God? Are we still his people? Because we're not doing the things we used to do that said we're his people. We're not, we're removed from the, like, the promised land. Wasn't that the thing he gave us to say he's our God? But we're not there anymore. We're not 
doing the temple sacrifices. We're not doing... Is all this up for grabs? And this is a thoroughly modern question, isn't it? We live in a time of absolutely unprecedented change. As recently, and if we look at the scope of human history, as recently as, um, you know, for me, my grandparents' generation and before that, you can place yourself wherever you want to there. But for me, that generation and before, for centuries before, things were reasonably stable. Sure, I'm not saying things were easy. There were challenges, world wars and all sorts of things. Don't, let's not buy into the fact that they had it so much easier than us. Let's not get there. But the institutions and patterns of life were reasonably the same. Families were reasonably stable. I'm not saying they were functional, but they, were, they, were, they didn't have the, the kind of fluidity and change that we experience today, the shape of families. Church life, if you're a believer, the way you, the way you interacted when you came to church was reasonably the same. If in your occupation, you probably, you're much more likely to stay in the same job your whole life, let alone think about changing your profession. Things were stable. But in such a short space in human history, everything feels like it's up for grabs. Everything. The, the, the patterns that we are used to that tell us we're this kind of people who do these kind of things. God is our God. We're his people. All that's up in the air. And so this is such a question. It's such a timely question. And again, Daniel and the exiles, it speaks straight to this. Another way of saying this question, and we see Daniel answer really clearly, is God even here with us or did we leave him back in Jerusalem with the temple? Because that's what we understood from a little child, that we would go, we'd go to the temple and in there was the Holy of Holy Place. God was in there. Remember, right from the very start, the temple was just meant to be a reflection of the garden, which had a much more open and expansive and welcoming. But this is Jesus to remind them, a pattern to remind them of something, but they remembered the pattern and not the call. So is God even here with us? And if he is here, there's so many other, it seems like the power dynamic, the spiritual power dynamic is up for grabs because there's all these other gods that are worshipped, the Babylonians had uh, as a civilization, there was a big power dom- They were the superpower of the time. And they loved showing off their power. And they also were, it was a civilization that had lo- lots of gods. So you can imagine as, gods, as the Hebrews came into this culture, it's like, well, all of a sudden, this was never a question about who was the ultimate god, but it seems to be up for grabs. Is God still the god? Is he still sovereign over all of these things? Good questions. Let's, let's look. Daniel, um, it's really interesting. I can't wait till we get to Esther because the way Daniel ch- um, answers these questions is fundamentally different to the way Esther answers these questions. For instance, is God here with us? Well, actually in Daniel, in the way in which the story's been written and recorded, God is all over the book. The word God is all over the book. And actually the way in which God's referred to is he is the primary actor in the book. Everything that happens is because God is God. So in chapter 1, we get this. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory. So this all happened because the Lord willed it. Which is, there's a, 
man, there's just a great conversation in here about the difference between sovereignty and control. Because we're saying God wanted this. No, we're saying, we're saying God was in control of this. No, but he was still sovereign over all of it. Cool. I'm just going to leave that there. Um, we'll do that another time. It sounds very, it is very subversive. It is very subversive. Um, but again, the, the big point here, right at the very start, God is introduced as the one who's over all of this. So there's no question. It resolves this right up the front. Esther is maybe a little less clear. I want to make some sort of gender comment here about being less clear in the book, about, but I feel like that's not going to be helpful. So I'll, I'll leave that. I won't. I'll leave that well alone. Um, we get in Daniel 1.17. God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding and God gave Daniel the special ability. See, God is present and he's very much active uh, in the Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego story. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. I love this bit, actually. It's a tiny side. They're really clear. The God whom we serve is able to save us. Verse 18. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve you, never serve your gods or worship the gold statue. The courage. No question that God will, the loyalty. But he might not. The maturity to say, this might not work. Because <laughs> as it happens, we find ourselves in Babylon. We didn't think that was going to happen, but it did. So we just recognise that life doesn't always turn out. Again, the issue of control and sovereignty. Just because God's plan A is not working out here, it would seem, does not mean he is less sovereign. These young men understood that and staked their lives on it. Amazing, amazing. Again, point being, God is present and in control. And then Daniel 6 as well, um, my God sent the angel. So we see all the way through, it, it, you know, Daniel answers the question, is God here? Absolutely. Is God sovereign? Absolutely. There's no question. In fact, um, the way in which God's referred to is really interesting. And he's not actually referred to as Yahweh, which is the Hebrew name given to God. It's like the setting changes. That doesn't have currency here amongst this broader earth. We understand that. So we're going to use terms that have... Because we know the Hebrew word Yahweh means he's the God of everything. But actually, he's used in more of these cosmic terms. So that it's understood in that context, he is the God of God. He's the God of heaven, the most high God, King of heaven, Lord of heaven. You see how the book of Daniel puts to bed these questions. He's doing, he's still the Lord, he's still our God, but this is the really interesting one. Are we still his people? This is the one that I would suggest was more challenging for the exiles and I want to suggest is really challenging for us because it's about, well, if I'm not doing the things that I do that say I'm a Christian, like, I'm a Christian, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian, I go to church. I'm a Christian, I pray every day. I read the Bible every day. I'm on the ministry team. I speak in tongues, I da-da-da, insert whatever. Well, we know that's not really what makes you a Christian, is it? If you're not doing those things, if you find yourself in a place or a time, I'm a Christian because I do this ministry, I serve in this way. Well, what if you find yourself in a place and time when you're not doing it anymore? If you've attached your identity to a practice in life, you're in big trouble. You're on shaky ground. 
and I'm looking around and, and looking at a whole lot of people who've lived a whole lot of life who know the deep truth of that. If you attach your identity to what you do, your practice for God in response to God, because of God, doesn't matter. You're in trouble. And this was the challenge that God's people found themselves in Babylon because they had so connected their sense of identity as God's people with their religious practice and they couldn't do it. This is where the idea of, we used this term before, embodied holiness. It's an impressive term, Pastor Graham. You're so learned. You're so, your vocabulary is so impressive. It's this idea, how do, we, it, how do we live in a way that demonstrates to us, to God and to others, that Yahweh is our God and we are his people? That's embodied holiness. Holiness is the idea. It's not just moral purity. We talked about this. It's the thing that says we are set apart and living by another value. We are, we are other than this. God's holiness is about the fullness of who he is. He's so completely and fully God. He's holy. And so how do we live in a way that we embody and live out these things rather than just putting out these kind of, it's almost like virtue signalling our Christianity. That's a very popular term, isn't it? Virtue signalling, when you kind of want people to know the things that are important, you put them out there. Have, I'm sure you've been in this scenario um, where maybe it's a conversation at the water cooler at your workplace, your family, your friends, and it's kind of Christians, non-Christians, maybe, maybe non-Christians, and you find yourself, there's a level of relationship where you're talking about something that's where people will have strong opinions and even values on the different. It might be about raising children. Oh, there's a fertile uh, ground. It might be about something like, uh, if you're maybe a bit younger, your, your, your stance or your attitude towards drugs or alcohol or sexuality. And, and you're having a conversation. It's going further and further where people are sharing and you're kind of going, this is, this is going in a good place. And, and you're realising, okay, I, I'm trying to do this... in. Um, this kind of subversive thing here. I'm trying not to do one thing or the other. I'm trying to go the middle line. And then all of a sudden, someone in the conversation says, well, I believe Deuteronomy 2, whatever it is, says that homosexuality is an, um, an abomination and I just that's the Bible says it. Voomp! Conversation shuts down. I believe the Bible says, you know, spare the rod for the child. Talk to you about that one later. Uh, <laughs> I believe the word, so therefore this. They just come out with a really, and you're like, whoa, where did that, a really strong statement. And it, it's kind of this rebel revolt thing where the feel is, the, the need is, as they sense the conversation is going somewhere that's difficult, I, what, the fear of compromise, I need to be really clear about what is right and what is wrong, and so I'm just going to go bang. And... and and they make you make a statement. Now, I've done this. Okay, let me own it. I'm sure you guys never have. But I've done this before because you feel the, the weight of compromise. And so what I need to do is to make it really clear what I think is right or wrong. And it's so un-Jeremiah-29ing the situation. It's, it's not finding this loyalty to the... There's something going on here that's a good conversation, that some fruit could come out of here. But my fear is that actually the big issue is about whether people think I'm Christian or not, whether I'm Christian enough or not. So I need to do something I need to say something interestingly Jesus had no problem can I also say often the fear is what other Christian people will think 
if I'm Christian enough. Jesus had no problem with that, it would seem. He was quite happy for the religious leaders to be unclear about where he stood on moral issues as he tried to find the loyalty to the relationships and to what was going on here in the situation without compromising. Again, so difficult. But here's the challenge of living as an exile. Is anyone, am I speaking to anyone this morning? Does this make sense? Do you feel this weight? You feel this weight. So the embodied holiness and, and the, the power of this is so significant when we actually think it's less about what we do in that situation but more who we are. It's more who we are. And we see Daniel do this really well. In, actually, the, it's the story where the king has a dream. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. One night during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had such disturbing dreams that he couldn't sleep. He had bad pizza the night before. He called, in, he called in his magicians, enchanted sorcerers, astrologers, and he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed. As he stood before the king, he said, I had a dream that deeply troubles me and I must know what it means. Now, this was actually a thing. What he was doing was what was done in the ancient times um, to you know, have all these people in your court who were known. Their sense of identity was their ability. They were magicians and children, sorcerers, astrologers. Not even necessarily religious. It was like, these are the people who can do this. And so the, the challenge here is for Daniel to participate in this is to participate in a cultural practice that's not centred around God. Do you get the, get the context here? So Daniel's choice is to go, this is so ungodly and not the way we do it. This is not the way we do discernment or dreams in God's kingdom. I'm having nothing to do with it, to be really clear. King, I don't care that it troubled you. I don't care that you're awake all night. I don't care that my input could actually have a massive influence for the kingdom of God in this place. This is not right and ungodly and I need that to be clear. See what's going on here? But he doesn't do that. He actually, firstly, he goes to his friends because actually the king is a bit unreasonable and he says, right, um, first of all, I'm not even going to tell you a dream. You've got to tell me the dream and what it means. And then just to really present his unreasonableness creds, he said, when they said, no, we can't do that, he said, right, I'm killing all of you then. Very reasonable guy, Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel is concerned for his friends. The way it's written, it's interesting. Daniel responds because he's concerned for his friends. He's one of the ones who'd be killed. But his concern is for his friends. And he says, we need to pray about this. He comes back and Daniel replied, look, king, there's no wise men, enchanters, magicians or fortune tellers who can reveal your secret. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he's shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now, I will tell you your dream. And the vision you saw. So he participates in what at the time was considered to be a pagan... Like I said, this wasn't just a casual thing. He's now put himself inside a system, a system that works. In a, it's a pagan, ungodly thing. He's placed himself inside it and he's subverted it. He said, I'm going to serve you here, king, your majesty. But what does he do? He points it all towards God. It's not about him, so he subverts the things of the astrologers and magicians who build it all on their own credibility, they're feathering their own nest. He said, no, no, I've, I've gone to the Lord and he can reveal it, not me, he will reveal it. He subverts the whole thing. But to do that first, he's got to place himself there when the reaction would have been out of fear of compromise, I can't have a thing to do with this. Genius. This is the way of the exile. This is the way of Jesus. It's challenging it may not get applauses from the religious 
majority at times. But it is what we're called to. I'm going to get the band to come up. I want to finish just in the time we've got left. So right from the start, this is an ancient story that looks at a very modern question. And like I said, this, I feel like this is the context of our lives and we are living out these questions. What does it look like when, everything's, when everything changes? Is God still God? Is he still the Lord? Is he still our God? Are we still his people? What does it look like when you change churches and they do things differently? Is this even Christian? I know you have those questions. You send me the emails every now and then. (laughs) We're used to seeing these songs, but now we're singing these songs. It used to sound like this, but now it sounds like that. We used to pray like this, but now we pray like that. This, are we still his people when we do these things? Well... That's a a good question. It's probably even more powerful when we live it out. So many of you, I'm sure, in the last, if not all of you, and in fact, I reckon I'm pretty safe that all of you would have had this experience. Something in the last, if not the year, the last two, if not the last two, the last five, something fundamentally has changed where it feels like you're on foreign land. And if you didn't verbalise it as clearly as this, then your spirit and your heart did. Is God still here with me? Is God with me? Is he, is he still the Lord? Is he still sovereign? Because it, things look out of control. More importantly, is he still my God? And what do I do now? How do I live now? So that I'm still, it's clear to me, as much to me, maybe sometimes it's to others, but to God that I'm still his people. In this place, the exiles discovered something and they said, this is good. We've discovered, we've got to the other side of this and we've discovered this liberty, this freedom, this truth. Let's write it down. Let's keep telling this story. Somehow, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they got that it wasn't just their story, an ancient story. It's the story. It's a human story. So they said, let's write it down. Let's tell this story regularly. Let's encourage each other that actually even when everything changes, even when we feel in foreign land, He's still the Lord. He's still your God. And you're still His people. We can read it. You can have someone up the front open Scripture and tell you. But you'll find that freedom when your spirit testifies to that, when you feel it. So we're just going to spend a couple of moments Where I've been praying and believing that God's going to do a couple of things. We just see it's just so happens. Charlie chose this song. I'm a child of God. Great song. Great song to introduce. There's a promise in there. But we're just going to. I'm just trusting that God's going to either speak directly to you. But then after we've sung this, I just for a few moments want to open that up to that that bit where we might get a bit weird and just let someone else. God might use someone else to say something. If you're that someone else, 30 seconds is fine. If we've got five people who give us encouragement from the word or something from 30 seconds, that'll be better than one person taking five minutes because we want to surround ourselves and be the people of God that remind each other that even when everything changes, I'm still your God. You're still my people. 
So we just spend a few moments to do that, to receive that encouragement from the Lord, because this is what life's like, right? Often feels like we're on foreign land. God's still there. Next job. Feel free to stand if you'd like. This was produced by Cornerstone Christian Resources. It is deemed copyright and may be used by permission. For further information about Cornerstone Christian